Welcome to The Mockingcast, the podcast of Mockingbird Ministries, an organization that exists to connect the Christian faith with the realities of everyday life. As always and ever, I'm Scott Jones, your host, and we come to you every Friday to discuss, among other things, the contents of our weekly wrap-up post, Another Week Ends, which is sort of like our Christian cosmopolitan grace-infused guide to the contents of the interwebs as we see them for the week. In just a few moments, I'll be joined by the usual suspects, David Zoll and Sarah Condon, to talk about the contents of Another Weekend's. But first, I had the distinct privilege of talking this week with Simeon Zoll. Simeon is the brother of David Zoll and John Zoll and the son of Paul and Mary and is a theologian at the University of Nottingham in the UK. His work focuses on the theological challenges generated by claims to experiences of the Holy Spirit, especially in the history of Protestantism from the Reformation to the rise of the Pentecostal and Charismatic movements. We talked about many and all things theological, and I hope you enjoy the conversation half as much as I did. I give you Simeon Zoll. Simeon, welcome to the podcast. Glad to be here, Scott. You are the son of Paul Zoll and the son with the most theological education. That may or may not be true. So we have, you, you have actually more theological education probably than David and John combined. I certainly spent a lot of time in school in my 20s. <laughs> the first thing of yours I ever read was a blog post on imputation. Yeah. Which I still go back to and send people to. I don't remember what I said. What did I say? You talked about how infusion kind of can't be right uh, because you sort of like, you make this argument from 2 Corinthians 5 Mm -hmm. and you sort of say, look, you know, I'm not saying that there aren't scriptures that are, we hold intention, but this, here's the case that why to interpret these passages in light of others. Like you do in a recent article in Commonweal Magazine, where you take on D.B.H., David Bentley Hart. Yes, indeed. That was a lot of fun. What was fun about it? Well, it was fun because, uh, you know, you work at theology for a long time, you get an education, um, you start to have an idea what you think, and then you start to think, hey, maybe I can actually have something to contribute here and not just sit at the feet of the teachers and so on. And then reading his piece, which I really enjoyed, I hope that came through in my Yeah, you were incredibly complimentary. And what I I liked was, A, you you talk about how you wish more theologians delved into scripture as as earnestly and deeply as he does. Mm. And also, you, you had a very measured response. I mean, you're sort of like, hey, look, let me be honest, right? Like, you can read the New Testament several different ways. Like, so I'm just going to try to say, here's why, here's the case for this view, as opposed to, well, there's only this view, you know? Yeah, because I've spent a lot of time with the Testament, and I find that that's, that's, that's what's the case, um, especially with the really fraught issues, the issues around ethics and the law and salvation and stuff. I mean, there's a reason people have debated these things for a long time. doesn't mean there aren't some answers that are more right than others, but you can't start by saying, of course I'm right, and, and some alternative interpretation is definitely wrong. At least that's not how I try to proceed. And basically, Hart was arguing that in the piece that you responded to, we'll link to it in the show notes, is that 
basically that the New Testament ethic on wealth makes capitalism and Christianity incompatible. So you basically, you can't live in a capitalist society, endorse it in any way, even in a qualified way, and really say that you're maintaining an ethos that is in any sense Christian. Yeah, that's what he says. And, he, and the, the upshot, which he, uh, he's very sort of honest about, is like, well, what do we do with that? We can't exactly, I mean, do we just withdraw like the monks into the desert? Um, is that the only real option? And he's sort of like, well, maybe. <laughs> At the very <laughs> least, we need, to, uh, we need to sit with our kind of ethical mediocrity. Um, and he has a couple of really strong exegetical points, especially about the rich young ruler. That's the one that where I was like, oh, shoot. Um, I think he might be right, you know, that the problem with the rich young ruler is not that he has the wrong attitude to his money. It's the fact that he has money at all. Um, and certainly, you know, we're always reading the Bible in ways where we want to sort of defang it, uh, declaw it um, in relation to our context. We want to have it apply maximally to our people we disagree with and minimally to us. And for pretty much all of us these days, that means minimizing a lot of the wealth ethic. Well, especially because you're a professor. In England, and that's a, a lucrative gig. Well, think. it is. That, that, he hit me where it hurt uh, yeah. on that front. Yeah, no question. <laughs> Do you think that the rich young ruler, could it be that his problem, what if the rich young ruler had not gone away and said, Jesus, forgive me, I'm a sinner, but I really, I don't know that I can part with my wealth. Like, can I, you know, like, it's very interesting because I, I don't know, is he on the self-justification process? And Jesus says, okay, here's the radical ethical act. What if he had just been like the publican and said, have mercy on me, a sinner? Maybe, I mean, he looks at least as scrupulous as Peter. Yeah. Well, I think, uh, I mean, you have to think that this was the right thing for this guy to hear. Um, and this is what he needed to hear. And there's some sense in which it's what, therefore what we need to hear. I think, uh, you know, Jesus isn't just... And he's talking to individual people in their specific situations. He's not necessarily just saying this is the case always. He's looking at this guy. He's seeing something about him where what he needs to hear is this ratcheting up of the ethic. You've also written elsewhere that like, now it's been a while since I've read this, but I remember you arguing somewhere that it's not so much that you need to hammer people with the law all the time, but pastorally and proclamation, you need to figure out where the law is already hammering people. Mm. And listen into the echoes of the sting of law in their hearts and narrate to them the sting so that then they can get to the God. Is that, is that fair? Yeah, pretty much. Yes. I, I was it's, uh, in my book, my first book. Um, I say that towards the end and uh, drawing on this guy, Christoph Blumhardt, who I was studying. But the point there is um, I was reacting against a certain way, a uh, form of Lutheran preaching where the idea is people don't even have a plight until the law hits them with it. Um, and you need to, and therefore the way that the law speaks to people is not at all through their actual situation in life and time. It's through this preaching moment. And I like the idea. I mean, I, I'm sympathetic to the aims there, but I think it's too abstract. It abstracts the law from the fact that actually the law is around us constantly. And the role of the preacher very often is simply to give us words uh, for the law that we are already experiencing. Um, and then the function of the theological use of the law is done then, but really it's God is preaching the law to us all the time in our lives rather than relying on these specific moments with specific preachers. Though, of course, God uses those too. So the preacher needs to be less like accuser and more listener to the broken heart 
brokenhearted accused. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. I mean, there's a, there's a wisdom there, there are moments for, for bringing down the hammer in some kind of way, maybe a bit like David Bentley Hart's article. Um, but I think much more often the law we've already, we're already under the law and, um, the point is not to do it away with it, but to first give, uh, give words to recognize that is something that actually Robert Jensen, who you were talking to not that long ago, says that, that one of the theological tasks these days is catechesis. What he means by that is that we, people don't even have the categories anymore to understand their own experiences. And um, so there is a, a role for that. I guess that's what I was going at. But a compassionate kind of explaining of this, is the, this, this pit in your stomach that you live with all the time, this is actually something called the law. Why did you start studying theology? Like what, at what point were you like, hey, this is what I'm doing? Like, I, I, you couldn't get honest work or what? <laughs> well, I first studied German history and literature in college, and then I just couldn't kind of stay away. We did a lot did you of... Do that because, did you do that because you're like, look, this is the way to get chicks. Like, really. <laughs> in all the films in the 80s, 90s, like, you see that it's, it's the, really the German intellectual historians that really always get the girl. I mean, you, you've got me. I mean, obviously. But I like to pretend at least that they were intellectual reasons. Um, I happen to know German because I lived there when I was a kid because my dad moved, moved me over there when I was nine to, to study theology. Um, and I got to, uh, anyway, I was doing this stuff and we did a lot of critical theory and kind of contemporary philosophy about the nature of history and stuff. And I realized that that was what I really liked, but I was always writing these essays with a theological slant, um, saying, well, a better answer to these questions would come with theology. So I thought, hey, I'm, I should go give this a try. So I went to do a nine-month diploma at the University of Cambridge. And 13 years later, I'm still in England and still a theologian. What, what specifically were the questions that pushed you to theology? Like, what were the things that you were like, hey, I got to, sw- yeah. theology's the thing where I need to gravitate to? So I spent a lot of time in, towards the end of college in campus ministry, uh, working with Campus Crusade at Harvard in a, in a student capacity. And um, I, I was just very acutely aware that Christianity and it's the forms in which it was being kind of proclaimed and ministries that were happening on campus were, were stuck in these kind of Christian languages and, and also they were pretty moralistic. And between those two things, they were very unattractive um, in ways that had very little to do with the Christianity I had experienced and that I was living with. And I thought it could be done much more compellingly. And I found that I was reasonably good at translating theological ideas about, you know, about sin or about law or about um, grace in ways that people could hear. And I saw that as a form of, of theology and I just wanted to do it more and do it better. So the, the questions involved. So, I mean, one, one in particular, I started running an alpha course. I was asked to run an alpha course and there were these people having these experiences of the Holy spirit, you know, with my hands on them experiences that I had almost never had in my own life. I was like, what is going on here? But I also felt that there wasn't this inherent opposition between these charismatic, intense emotional experiences and kind of classical Protestant theology, the way that I'd read. I felt that that was a, somehow a mistake had been made in the way that that opposition had been set up. And I spent a lot of my career kind of trying to untangle that false dichotomy. All the way from Wittenberg to Azusa Street. From Wittenberg to Azusa Street. That's right. No, I mean, I, I've heard from some like therapeutic types that like one of the marks of healthy parents and children is to be able to befriend your adult parents. And I look at like Karl Barth's relationship with his children as adults. I mean, and like people like uh, Marcus Bart really shaped his thinking and vice versa. I mean, you, you seem to like, when I, I'm a big fan of your dad's work, PZ, the inimitable one. And it, it seems like 
there's a lot of continuity between the things that he is most passionate about right now. And sort of, you know, he's, you know, it, in sort of the golden age of his theological life, right? Like looking back on a long career. It seems like you two are simpatico on, on some key concerns. Is, is that fair to say? I think it is. I think it, um, to some degree, it depends on the concerns, but yeah, absolutely. I mean, dad has always been um, both, you know, implicitly in my head, but then also just explicitly the one of the main theological voices. I would say the biggest thing, and something that I'm more explicit about now, although I think I've been doing it all along, that I'm really interested in theology that integrates with real life, with experience, that isn't just concepts or ideas out there or abstractions, that's always connected with who we actually are in real history. And that's something that dad has been doing intuitively and also talking about explicitly for a very long time. And on that front, I couldn't be more on the same page as him and many others as well, obviously. It's amazing as a theologian. I, mean, I talked to my friends who were in the, in the business I'm the only one who has a, a parent who they can have this level of theological conversation with. I could say, oh, dad, what, what, what was that debate in Tübingen in the 80s about objectivity and subjectivity? Like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Velker. It's not that interesting. You know, that I, most of my <laughs> friends don't don't have that kind of um, expertise at home. But at the same time, what I really have from him also is the the pastoral voice, the voice saying, well, how, how is this real? How does this relate to um, your life and the lives of, of real people in the world? Do you still have like a grudge with the Jesuits like he does for what they did to the Jansenists? <laughs> I'm a little more temperamentally sort of erratic uh, than dad. And maybe that keeps me from being as creative as he is. But uh, I'm always... So you don't say stuff like Journey is the best rock and roll band of all time. <laughs> I try to be a little more measured, um, but not, not just not. I mean, because that's just the way I am. I'm always uh, I'm a little more... I don't just see things in, in, in these big, powerful categories, though I do that a bit too. I feel like, you know, in theology, sometimes we have like two categories, like orthodox or heresy, but then there's like an overlooked, like heterodox or sort of early pioneer and like origin is one that's like ambiguous early, you know, before the concre- concrete norms are laid mm-hmm. out and he's experimenting. And I, I look at Schleiermacher that way too. And, you know, Bart had this Karl Barth had this like weird relationship with Schleiermacher. He used to say things like no one can hate here until they love here first and are tempted, dare I say, to love and love again. He said late in life, maybe what Schleiermacher was doing was what I was doing. Bart says like, instead of the second article, he's really focusing on the third article and looking at all th- it's sort of last things first, like mm-hmm. church spirit reality on the ground and, and, and working the creed from the back end to the front end. Is that, is it fair to say that, that, that like maybe that's some of what you're doing, like trying to start with last things first, like the third article of the creed? Yeah, certainly. And especially the third article insofar as it's the Holy spirit. Um, yes, absolutely. I guess I, I growing up sort of in theology, getting my education, there were sort of two main kind of ways of doing theology that were around all the time. And that I, I, I reacted against, I didn't like, one was um, a more kind of old school, sort of traditional, often reformed Protestantism that was very propositional, very much about getting it right, very much having, about having the whole picture and getting your, your ordo salutis right and your doctrine of this and that, um, in a sense that just dogmatic clarity is, is the goal always. And then the other, which I found very dry. Uh, and on the other hand, there's this, and more, maybe this is kind of the Anglican, uh, the British Anglican thing. 
this very metaphysical, um, let's talk about participation and union with Christ and sort of go, have a little bit of a mystical thing. And I was, I, I like that stuff up to a point, but I found it again, very abstract. So there are two different ways of, of being able to be sort of perform your theological intelligence without having to necessarily bring it home into your, um, the life that you live. Um, and so the, the category I've been drawn to over and over again to sort of mediate with, you know, between theological concepts, the metaphysics and the reality is emotion. Um, so our, the, our desires and our affections, uh, that's so, but those are the, those are two, two things I always have in mind that I'm trying to kind of correct or recalibrate back down to earth. So in that sense, yes, third, third article. Yeah. How do you take emotion seriously without getting into, I mean, I, I, you know, there's work that's been done in late 20th century and contemporary stuff around Calvinism as this kind of, you know, how do I know I'm saved? And I don't want to just know today, but I want to know tomorrow, the next day and the next day. And while I look inside for the inner testimony of the spirit and a lot of people get lost there. So how do you properly give emotion its due weight without like making the emotions a tyrannical force that are always in their ambiguous moments condemning that's uh that's a great question um and it's one that that protestants have wrestled with over and over uh you know wesley and whitfield uh not least um and i think the way that i understand that is is twofold um basically people get so worried about that problem that they flee into a very theoretical realm that's not really describing the reasons they're attracted to Christianity, to the gospel in the first place, which often are emotional, whether, whether they explicitly say so or not. Um, but secondly, I mean, this is where the law of gospel dynamic is so powerful, um, because the problem with seeking assurance, which often, especially when it gets devolved into the pastor trying to assess the, the, the conversion, the, the validity or otherwise of the conversion of a member of the flock, um, that, but that's because it, it becomes an instrument. It's how, it's how it's used, not the, not the thing itself. The problem is how you try to instrumentalize that into, well, I'm definitely in, therefore I can just chill out and relax or, and judge other people, or this person is in that person's out. So those become ways. So it's all about how it's used rather than the thing itself. So the problem is an emotion. It's, um, whether you try to turn it into a blunt instrument for, um, trying to assess, uh, get control over God. Because really, it's up to God whether you feel assured or not. Um, but I think it's more, much more problematic in relation to others than in relation to ourselves. Is that, is that, is that good? Is that satisfying or, or not, not yet? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm thinking, like, I, I knew a professor at a local Bible college who always did, when he would meet a stranger, right? He would always do that. If God would, if you were dying tonight, why would God let you in your own heaven, in, into his heaven? And I was thinking, and I live in a pretty metro blue state area in the United States, like metropolitan Philadelphia, and spent a lot of time in New York too. And so my thought is on a subway, the average person, when you say that, you actually reinforce their, the law and their own self-righteousness. Because, well, I'm not like this judgmental jerk. So like you mm-hmm. actually, rather than make them feel self-conscious of their own brokenness, you actually hardened their own sense of self-dependency. You know, like, so it's what you're, it sounds like almost like what you're saying is, you know, in, in, in theological education, oftentimes we say, well, are you a people person that likes to, you know, hold the hands of the dying and console people when they're sick and brokenhearted? Or are you the kind of people person that likes to go get new recruits and, you know, evangelize and, and into church growth? And it sounds like in your work, actually, they'd be flip sides of the same coin, that the best evangelists would be the best pastoral care people and the best ca- pastoral care people 
would be listeners of the broken heart and would be the best proclaimers of the gospel. Yeah, I think so. I think, I think you're slightly over-interpreting what I'm saying to be uh, just a, a universal principle that we need to apply. And that's not how I see it. I see it as a way of criticizing contemporary trends in a way that's, that's undeniably has scriptural and traditional weight. Um, Dude, you're a systematic theologian. If you don't have a universal principle, what do you have? <laughs> well, the principle is a critical one because of the freedom of the spirit. You don't, uh, basically the, the, the certain ways of trying to be universal are just forms of, of using the law to try to control. Um, that doesn't mean we don't try, uh, and so on. But, um, but again, I think, I think there'd be, there would definitely be ways of doing theology where I wouldn't be worried about this emotion stuff. Um, where I'd actually want to go more for the objective and, and so on. But I don't think that's the era we're in. I think, especially in kind of mainstream Protestant theology, we're still just reeling from Bart in a way that's really gotten very stultifying. Yeah. BGB, I call it. Bart gone bad. <laughs> <Yeah>. <clears throat> Do you think that's true, like not just in the allergy to pietism, which causes probably the allergy to emotion and affection, but also like maybe even also in apologetics in the sense of, at least in American theological education, where BART is taken seriously, you often don't spend a lot of time with what I would call for better, lack of a better term, like alien particularity. Like, what does the gospel look like in conversation with this perspective or this worldview or this religious tradition or this contemporary neo-pagan, whatever it is, you know, like how to, is that, is part of this, is the legacy that we have to take stuff on the ground more seriously? Yes, I think it is. I mean, you have to understand, um, you know, where Bart was and what he was doing and the context in which he was working. He was clearing the ground uh, against a tradition that had gotten very problematic, but he did so. There's a way in which a lot of his theology is primarily defensive. If you ever try to disagree with Bart as a professional, it's very, very difficult because he's always saying the opposite of the other thing. You know, he's always including you in his dialectic somewhere so that you, 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 it's very hard to kind of get around. Uh, it's like trying to punching this giant marshmallow man. Um, and, uh, but it's because it's a theology designed in part as a defensive maneuver. So he can always be right. And uh, I think these days we're a little bit less that in that sense, he's coming out of a modernist impulse that he's reacting to and trying to fix a world where people say, if I just have the right methodology at the start, then I'll have good theology. Then theology will have credibility in the modern world. And I think we've moved past the point where we're all that worried about that kind of thing. We want a good theology for us at this moment in our context that, and then can speak to other contexts perhaps, but always in a particularist way. Um, so I think a lot of what's animating him is this, is this modern, uh, modernistic debate that we've actually moved past. Who's your favorite theologian? My favorite theologian. Um, my, the theologians who have most inter- influenced me are Luther and probably my dad. Um, That's a beautiful thing that you can say that. Yeah, it's true. Uh, it's, it's very much true, especially I think a lot insofar as I have something that's a bit new to say on the theological scene at the moment. And I feel a little bit that way right now. Um, it actually, it, it's really dad or, or, or Luther as interpreted through dad. Um, so yeah, that's, that's the case. And I keep going back. There's lots of stuff in Luther I don't like. That makes also makes me different than a lot of people who, who write about Luther. Um, yeah, there's a lot of things in Luther I really don't have a lot of time for. But, um, but you know, you're always finding like what? some like what new don't principle. You have, what don't you have a lot of time for? What do you loathe in Luther? <laughs> well, I think as I've, I've written about a fair bit, he, I think he, over, um, he makes the Holy Spirit 
uh, he domesticates the Holy Spirit around the external word, around biblical preaching and the sacraments in a way that is just not, is obviously not true to life or to his own experience. Um, I think his politics is very strange. Uh, I think I don't, I understand, but don't fully relate to his very, very high view of the sacraments. Um, uh, you know, I wouldn't want to do away with that, but it's just, it's not, it's not me. Um, whereas his stuff about the relationship between theology and experience, the theology of the cross, justification, law, gospel, the stuff, uh, that stuff is, is eternal to me. Now you live in England, which is, uh, I, I would guess farther ahead on the secular curve than the United States. Mm-hmm. Do you have like evangelistic conversations with, with like frequently? I mean, how, how often do you find yourself? sitting in a pub or a coffee shop or at the train station and talking with people who are very self-consciously not Christians. And like, how does that go? Uh, well, first of all, I talk to people who are self-consciously not Christians constantly. Um, so I used to be in a college where the vast majority, it was just, there's an effortless sort of secularism, especially if you're in a kind of, you know, the kind of people who work in universities, uh, most definitely. Um, you know, the people I know, you know, my uh, my kids, friends, parents, and that kind of stuff, they don't know almost anyone, it seems, who's, who's religious uh, anymore. So, yeah, it feels like that's a, a ship that's sailed for a lot of people. Um, and yet, that it's a context where the bar is so low that just by existing, that sort of, you go, huh, that's so strange that you're not a crazy person, but uh, spend your whole life working on you know, theology. So, like, what, what like... I mean, what recently, what's a standout conversation that you had with somebody who's unchurched where you felt like maybe even you saw some of your work come alive? Like, here's the, maybe the nascent presence of the spirit in this person. Hmm. Well, I had a conversation at dinner the other night um, with a woman who, uh, well, I guess I always assume that people are working from a kind of Dawkins perspective because often they are and they want to tell you about it. And, um, and so I'd assume that for various reasons about this person. And then she said, actually, I do go to church sometimes in my local parish and I like my priest. And, um, and that sort of seemed to go against things she'd implied to me in earlier conversations, uh, where she'd sort of been, I'd been talking about Pentecostalism. She's like, but it's all really, you know, kind of in their minds. Right. Um, and, uh, and that made me realize that there was this, but the fact that she was that quiet about it, that it took, I mean, we've known each other for years and it wasn't until then that she sort of felt she could admit to me that she does actually go to church and think about these things and feels very confused about them, uh, you know, or interested. I mean, you know, just not, not settled about them. Um, that was new that the, yeah, I certainly would see that as the work of the spirit, but it took, it was years in the making actually. Do you, do you listen to your dad's podcast? <laughs> sometimes, sometimes I, not, not so all sh- of them. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, it's, I'm so weird. I've listened to every one of them. It's, uh, it's, I'm, I feel like I'm going to edit that out, but, uh, <laughs> I don't know. As I was thinking about some of the stuff, I, I read your recent, was it the AAR where you gave a paper yeah. on objective, subjective stuff? Yeah. I was thinking about, have you ever heard your dad's podcast on giant crab movies? I have not. I've it's, heard of it, but yeah. It's one of my favorites. And he says, and it's funny because there's one line and the whole thing was a crescendo to this one line where he talks about where the kid has a, a ray gun and this predatory crab is shrunk down. And he says, Oh, don't we all wish we could do that? And it seems to me that some of what you're talking about, about the emotional work of salvation mm. is it's something like that mm. where these things were the idols mm. that, you know, Edwards talks about, like all sin is just some form of unbelief. And 
where is it like the, where the salve of the spirit comes and shrinks that giant crab somehow that, and you don't feel like you're just an object anymore, but really a subject. Yes, absolutely. Um, and also I guess the way that we're just living in a kind of prison where, where around us, everything is like a, all these giant crabs everywhere. But, um, but on, but when you, when you get into where the truth is and the truth is often there's a way in which I, I do think that our emotional life for all its ephemeralities and ups and downs is often a better index of what we actually care about than the things that we think about in our minds. Um, and so insofar as you're getting in touch with it, yeah, it's, it's shrinking things down to, to, to the right size. And, and the spirit is always in that move to me. Uh, the spirit is always in the move towards truth, towards reality, towards concretion. Um, uh, yeah. Your dad sometimes says some stuff in his podcast. And I think some people say, think it sounds like Eastern or something. It's like you look in the mirror and you see God and it's you. Right. And, but I, isn't he there talking kind of about the spirit, the sense of like, you've got God for us as the father, God with us, maybe as the son and God in us as the spirit. Oh. We're all shadows of our future selves, right? Mm. Like in some sense, this, the spirit knows us better than we know ourselves. Yeah, certainly. I think you can definitely interpret it that way. I don't want to um, put words in dad's mouth uh, or sort of put some kind of theological fence around what he's saying. Um, but I think, uh, I think certainly, yeah. I mean, that, that, that sense of, of, of reality and the spirit being in the reality of who we actually are and where we actually are, uh, it certainly goes very well with a lot of that that he's saying. Do you ever like call your brother David and say like, dude, I mean, you're doing a great job, but theologically, you got to rein this in, man. Like, huh. or, or you got to read X or Y. I just love what Dave does. And, you know, I'm, I'm maybe more involved than it appears behind the scenes. I'm in touch with Dave a lot about different things. Um, and I mean, in a way, you know, I was talking earlier about that kind of Jensen thing about catechesis, having to teach people how, how to see things like the law or the spirit or sin and how they're, those are categories that are still alive and real and powerful and the warp and weft of our lives. And I think Mockingbird is doing that, you know, using new persuasive words as you know, um, by, by just finding it all over the place just saying it's everywhere. And it's, it's, the, it's that same work of integration that, uh, what we're, what's, ha- what's happening in our lives, in our in pop culture or in our family or in our social psychology, they're all connected. Um, and so that's always a, a new mythological move. That's always something the spirit is at work in that integrating back to reality uh, and seeing God in, in all these things around us. So I feel like I owe you a debt because Sarah Condon has become a really close friend and she just came out with a book, Churchy, Confessions of a Wife, Mother, and Priest. And you're the reason she writes for Mockingbird. I remember the conversation. And then she said that to me another time. I didn't realize it was, uh, I assumed other people were saying the same thing. Yeah, no, she points to that time where she, I mean, she was coming from Yale Divinity, you know, to the, her first Mockingbird conference. Yeah, I remember. Was really, was really kind of struggling. And, and she's like, why aren't there more women speaking and writing? And you said, well, why don't you do it? <laughs> I do. I remember the conversation and I'm, uh, what a wonderful thing. How, um, how touching that to help unleash, play some small part in unleashing such an amazing voice on the world. But man, she, she took it and ran with it, didn't she? In the most wonderful way. She did. And she's, um, yeah, again, I, I feel like I'm in your debt. She's a dear friend. Mm, that makes me, that's touching to me. Yeah. I, if you were going to like recommend, like, okay, what out there theologically do you think, Hey man, we got to pay attention to this or the church is missing the boat. And what out there is like, Hey, 
that's out before it's in. It's a trend. It's, it's, it's a flash in the pan and we can ignore it. That's a great question. I think, um, there's a lot I could say about that. I I'm, I'm very interested in, you know, I, I we work, have time. We have time. Yeah. You can all say right, whatever right. you want. Okay. So there are a few things. Um, I think a lot about the, there's this massive turn towards thinking about salvation and Christian life and really everything in terms of this word participation, um, that a lot, you know, related to union with Christ and theosis, it's often related to soteriology, but somehow that Christian life is participating with God. And that's some, that's an idea that's an ancient idea to some degree, a Catholic and Orthodox idea that the Protestant church has just been tone deaf about. And this is the way forward. And it's just, you know, you can just name in a list people like, whether it's Robert Jensen or Kathy Tanner or Paul Fittis, I mean, a whole range of really leading first rate. Well, yeah, but I mean, Protestant theologians as well. So not just sort of from the traditions where you might expect it. Um, but Protestants have well been like, yes, this is an answer to a lot of the questions we've had. This has serves ecumenical purposes and so on. And I find that enormously interesting, especially because I find the category so hard to pin down that it's the work it's doing is not the work it claims to be doing. Um, and so I think it's, it's worthwhile. It's there in Paul's, a lot of biblical studies about this, you know, union with Christ is fundamental in Paul's vision, but we need to think much more carefully about what's actually what it means. So in that paper you mentioned, I gave it AR, I, I sort of gently, but firmly, I hope, um, called, um, you know, point out that Kathy Tanner really does this a lot. Her, her whole wonderful book, Christ the Key that everyone's reading in my kind of world is, um, it doesn't touch the ground. It's, uh, it's very, um, it's all about this concept of attachment to Christ. That's very, very metaphysical and very hard to, to point to where this actually happens in the world other than kind of vaguely in the sacraments. Um, so I think, I think that's a, but it, but it's not a fad because this participation thing is there in the tradition. You see it over and over and it has been missed. And so thinking through further what that means, trying to give as much specificity as possible. I think that's really interesting. I think that's something I'm trying to do. I think that the work of Lewis Ayers is extremely important, um, especially there's a kind of reaction against an overplaying of the doctrine of the Trinity in theology that we had for quite a few decades there, that if we just get our doctrine of the Trinity right, everything else follows. And it's like a Colin Gunton, I think in the, pro- the second edition of Promise of Trinitarian Theology says, well, things have changed. And now everyone's a Trinitarian. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And, when, and when I was being trained, this was everywhere. And I was just, I was left pretty cold by it. And so the, the thing that helped me get out of it, other than just ignoring it kind of, and just talking about specific things rather than the doctrine of God in general was Lewis Ayer's book, Nicaea and its legacy, where he talks about how the original, doc, you know, the way the doctrine of the Trinity developed was, was as this very, the, it was much more apophatic than we think. So not, not, uh, we don't know, um, you know, that the further you get into it, the more you realize how little you understand it, that it's paradoxical and that it's connected to a life of Christian practice that you will, you come to understand the Trinity better, you know, as you become a better monk, <laughs> you know, not, not as you get, get smarter. Right. Um, and that's actually a very powerful idea. It connects it back down to, to earth and also reminds us that you can't just, say, oh, there's a triple dynamic, there are three things somewhere, therefore it must be a Trinitarian dynamic. So there's a lot of, a lot of not very good theology that is based on a bad, um, an over, overuse of the doctrine of the Trinity. Uh, and I think we're, but that's catching on. People are, have accepted what Lewis Ayers, also Karen Kilby, who I think is one of the very best theologians we have at Durham, 
uh, kind of puncturing social Trinitarianism and moving in a more towards sort of spiritual practice and, and basically all these different kinds of theology are trying to bring things back to concrete life. Um, Sarah Coakley is moving in this direction very much um, and not always in the same ways as me for her through contemplative prayer. But it's again, a, the idea that, that actually there's a dogmatic argument for thinking about the relationship between our lives and our theology and not just, that's not just something for the, it's in the domain of practical theology or pastoral theology that is actually, we're not being good theologians if we're not working through those dynamics. Um, in terms of stuff, it's a flash in the pan. I, honestly, I think we've been in a reasonably good phase for theology. At least um, we've moved away. What, what we've decisively moved away from is a lot of the kind of slightly silly, um, kind of the John Hick style stuff where really, um, I guess a kind of, uh, the Christianity has to, has to become, heretical or else it's just going to fade away. The Orthodox traditional Christianity is, is, is hopeless in the modern world. And that's been decisively refuted. Uh, and so that's a flash in the pan that's already flashed. I think, um, I guess those are the things that come to mind. Do you think today your dad in his systematics talks about a kind of dangerous objectivity? Like we can't deal with the presence of the absence of Christ. So like in more conservative circles, it's an inerrant Bible or in more sort of cosmopolitan liberal religious circles, it's religious experience, or maybe for Pentecostals, it's this, it's this certain kind of numerological experience, or, you know, for Catholics, maybe it's the magisterium or the real presence or something. Do you, do you, is there, it seems to me there's this trend in theology from a lot, and I think it happens in conservative circles mostly, where people are like, all right, I kind of outgrew a sort of old school positivist inerrancy. So now I put my hope in an inerrant muscular church and read my Harawas and my Millbank and my, so it's not mm-hmm. the problem. Was, it, it, I, I, it, it, does ecclesiology sort of fill a hole for bibliology for a lot of evangelicals now? Well, I think it, I think it certainly does. I think part of it is just, it's, it's people's first encounter with, with thoughtful uh, kind of um, engage with the world theology that's sophisticated and smart and informed, but isn't what they came from. Just the people who are talking are John Milbank and David Bentley Hart and Stanley Hauerwas. They're just, they're writing, they're out there. And a lot of, uh, so partly it's just a matter of who's talking, but there is more to it than that, I think. And there is the, the, the turn to the church or turn to an idea of tradition, uh, as to, to fill as a more dynamic way into, um, a sense of what authority is and so on. It's very attractive and people, people want meaning and they want, um, I think a lot of people want a sense of authority. Uh, I've never related fully to that, partly because I, I grew up with, with a really integrated, compelling, and, and very intellectually sophisticated form of Christianity where I, I didn't have to choose between kind of my pietist background and my intellectual future, that they were, they were always interwoven. What a gift. <laughs> well, it's a, it's a blessing. But, I, but it means that the time has come to kind of try to communicate that to the world a bit more maybe than I, than I have. I think there, it does feel like having an angle that isn't one of the usual ones and that feels a little bit fresh, a little bit new. Yeah. Part of what I think is the animating like spirit of Mockingbird. And I mean, I, I think this describes your dad. It sounds like it describes you. I feel like you have a a group of people in the church that have a very low anthropology Mm -hmm. and a low estimation of creation. (laughs) <laughs> or, 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 you know, Christ playing in a thousand places and are dismissive of that. And then you have people that probably have a, a, an openness to revelations of the triune God, not as the triune God, but are also 
a little Promethean in their anthropology, a little too, they think a little too much of human beings. And it seems like what your dad's been able to do is have this very Augustinian, very real, realistic estimate of the human condition. Mm -hmm. And yet this real openness to Christ playing in a thousand places. It's almost like he distinguishes between creation and the world. Like creation is this place where Christ still plays in a thousand places. The world is the mess we make of it. Mm. And, 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 but yet there are still these echoes. Is that fair? Is that the tension where things actually, where theology can kind of become missiology? I mean, it, where it really can make sense of the world? Yeah, I think so. I think that's, that's exactly right. I mean, um, remember my brother John once said to me, and I don't know where he got it from, probably just himself, but he said, uh, you know, if you give, in terms of debates about second versus third use of the law, he said, if you give me the second use, I'll give you the third use. What he meant by that was that most people who were pushing the third use don't really understand the second use. And the way this is relevant is that if you get the anthropology right at the start and a few basic bits and pieces about law and gospel and so on, then the world is open, is wide open. This is what Nimi Waraboko's book uh, on the Pentecostal principle is so wonderful about this because he talks about basically the freedom of the gospel as a freedom of play, not a freedom of... Um, of anything else. There's this, this, this dynamic, everything's open, everything's potentially interesting, everything's potentially a site of the work of the spirit. Um, but the, but so if you have the first bit, sort of, um, if you really have that in hand, then, then you're really very free uh, in creation and so on. So I, I would tend to interpret it more in a, in a pneumatological way than in terms of creation, but it's, it's essentially the same, the same point. Um, but certainly people who uh, want to say that we just, um, uh, we have to get our theology right because we, we have to go for the objective word only and only what it can tell us in these very specific kinds of ways, because otherwise we're being naive about human nature. I would say even that is naive about human nature. If you have a really robust, pessimistic anthropology, you're free from even that because you'll see how that itself is a kind of temptation uh, and a, a law. Um, and, uh, and so really thinking these things through leads to a very dynamic, very open, very playful engagement with the world, hopefully loving and hopefully funny. Seeing reality for what it is. Yeah. Not what we want it to be. Absolutely. Yes. I, that's, that's, that's absolutely crucial. Uh, and I think we, we do that. And that's why that you could, there's always more work to be done in theology. It's why like the law gospel distinction is so dynamic because there are always new ways in which we're not seeing the reality of things and new ways in which we can be freed and helped by engaging with the way things actually are. And always that starts with ourselves. What's the project that you're looking to do or finish or undertake that like is on the horizon for you that like, Hey, if I get this done, I feel like, you know, I, I you know, my soul will sing. I feel like I've kind of, I've really dug in like, what, what, what is that thing? Well, there, the, the, there's an immediate answer and there's a longer term answer. Um, immediate term answer is all of my energy. You know, as soon as I get off, uh, <laughs> off with you, I'm going to go right back to it is I'm, I'm about halfway through a big book called the Holy spirit and Christian experience, which I'm trying to really provide some fundamental ways of recovering the category of experience, especially religious experience, especially affective experience as fundamental in, in theology, but not in a way that's just Schleiermacher revisited. Um, and, and how doing that, and by thinking about it in relation to the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, gives you a new purchase on a lot of contemporary debates. I mean, like these ones I was talking about, about salvation and participation and 
so on, um, but also about the, as a kind of critique of virtue ethics, there's a lot of different ways in which I'm going to take it in the book. But this book feels like a real summative statement of what I've been thinking about for about 10 years. Um, and that's <laughs> puts a lot of pressure on me and that takes it can make it hard sometimes, but, uh, I'm don't hoping, screw it up. Nah, I'm hoping in a year and a half that'll be out the door and I'll feel like I've said what I've been wanting to say, um, on that front. And, but then after that, the, the book that's more and more kind of swimming into view is one on sin, uh, as the topic that seems to be even a lot of even a lot of theology that I otherwise really like. There's just this discomfort with the idea of sin. It's associated just with with moralism, with judgment, or only with sex, or whatever it is. And sin is something of a lost concept. In the sense that we're just that part of why we have problems in the world isn't because we haven't progressed politically enough. It's also because of of our of the human heart and how you can think about that and talk about that in the 21st century when, uh, is, is really vital. And I think without it, Christianity, it doesn't, you can find other ways to do the same stuff better, you know, whether it's social activism or, um, uh, even managing anxiety, you know, if, if, if sin isn't, sin is a fundamental structure in Christian theology and it's, uh, without a sense of it, I'm not sure I would be bothering with all this stuff. Um, but it's very hard to talk about. So that makes it kind of a fun, challenge, uh, and also hopefully something important. I'm actually going to try to talk about that at the Mockingbird conference, uh, in April. Frank Lake talks about how we have to like the way to be freed from neurotic guilt, which is really not real. It's not, we never get liberated from that. It's to feel the real guilt that then upon experiencing it is lifted in the cross of Christ. Mm, yeah. I mean, maybe it's a, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's funny because we wind up by minimizing sin. Maybe we wind up more in bondage to it. Absolutely. I think that that is the case. And so it's a, it's a, I mean, it's, 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 so Philip Melanchthon talks about sin a lot, but he always talks about it in terms of, of feelings, of emotions, um, about consolation of the terrified heart, uh, of, of these, all these ways in which we're freaking out all the time and we're unhappy and we're burdened. And in a way we still have all those people always say when I'm talking about, about Melanchthon, they say, but, but his whole thing of being worried about God's judgment all the time, but just no one relates to that anymore. Isn't that really dated? I got this question just at the AR the other week. And I think what I, you know, I don't know exactly all the things I'm going to say, but, but the starting point is, well, the words are dated or have dated, but the feelings are, haven't changed nearly as much. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's a matter of finding ways to connect those again. You know, your dad is fond of quoting Aldous Huxley, saying that, you know, what the world needs is more theological psychologists or, or psychological theologians. But you seem like one par excellence. So um, thank you for carrying that banner. My pleasure. And it's great to talk to you. Yeah. Thank you for coming on the podcast. What my hands and my body done If the Lord don't forgive me I'd still have my baby and my babe would have me But I was kissing on my baby And she put her love down soft and sweet In the lonely light I was free Heaven and hell were words to me Good morning, everybody. I just want you to know that I have showered, shaved, had a breakfast sandwich, and I am in Ocean City, New Jersey right now, and I am 
just, I'm still, the show must go on. David, how are you doing this morning in Virginia? Uh, d- doing great. It's really cold here. I mean, like t- 10 degrees or something. I, I, I kind of blast out of uh, the North, uh, North Pole, but uh, otherwise I'm great. Sarah, what's Texas like? It's not 20 there, right? No, Texas is great. It was like really cold two days ago, which is like 55. And then tomorrow it's supposed to be 80. So we get like a little taste of winter and then it pulls back. That's how it works here. So yeah, we're good. I was up all last night with a a kindergartner throwing up. So uh, real life, but I'm here now and he's watching a Rugrats movie. So I love it. Great feedback on the book, too, Sarah. I mean, I know you had to mention David and thank him because, like, you work with Mockingbird, but I feel like your mentions, I feel like, like I mean, I know you like me more than David, right? I mean, that's if you, like, I mean, if, it depends on the day, but yeah. Most days, okay. Just because I felt like your, your praise of me and gratitude was more sincere, just like it felt less perfunctory. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, uh, I don't know what to say, Scott. You got to be, these are just a fragile, fragile ground you're treading on. <laughs> Sarah's probably the only person that, that she doesn't like me more anyway, but if she did, she'd be the only person. You're much more likable than I am uh, in general. Yeah, you're, I'd, you're I'd a agree pleasant with person. That. You're yeah, a definitely. pleasant person. Yeah, Thank I think you. that's true. Yeah. Well, so we got publications out the wazoo coming, coming. We've got conferences happening. We've got. Christmas stuff coming out. I feel like we are a mercurial, energetic, gracious, spiritual fireball right now. The Mockingbird. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm, uh, you know, every day I, I kind of am amazed that it continues to be so fun and so full. But yeah, Sarah texted me the other day to say how she's just kind of really proud of how great the content on the website's been recently. And I, I feel that way too, you know, and you can't always say that. There's a lot of days in the year, a lot of weeks, but this uh, last couple of weeks, I just am so, um, so grateful for everything that's going around. If people haven't gotten to read like Charlotte's thing uh, from so the other good. day or the Luke Rollins post about Fantastic. being d- divorced on Christmas. I've shared um, both of those with so many people. I mean, I just, it's, it's a lot of, so there's a lot of people saying a lot of things that I think uh, need to be said. So anyway, I hope uh, it's a comfort to people, especially as we get into the season. Oh, and Scott, uh, I don't know if people know, but they probably do just because their feed, but the, I listened to at least the first half yesterday in the car of the surviving the, uh, the holidays podcast with duo. Um, and, uh, just delightful. Delightful. Yeah, Duo, Duo Dickinson is the man. Top I mean, to bottom. He is, he is so great. And he uh, he changed uh, Simeon's diaper, apparently, a few times, who we just heard from. So there mm-hmm. you go. Duo Dickinson, the connections to the Zoll family abound in so many ways. Poor Simeon. Yeah, I, should I make some <laughs> jokes about... You know, this thing about Simeon... Uh, just I, yeah, I'm gonna. Do, I'm not participating on that bandwagon anymore. I am his biggest fan. This interview is stellar. He is a theologian's theologian. No, listen, I like Simeon. He's he's a good guy. He's I I would say like as a brother, he falls a little short. Um, I could. He's more of like a close family friend. That's how I I consider him. But he's he's still a good guy. There's no question. He's written some good things, and uh, I'm glad that we had him on. I, I uh, we'll we'll see if we do it again. 
but <laughs> the people may John, speak. John told me he almost didn't finish his dissertation because of World of Warcraft. He had to sell his character. Ooh, I'm not. I'm not going to go public with uh, with that information. However, let's just say that Simeon is. Um, usually, when people tell me that they like his work, I say, "Are you sure we're talking about the same Simeon?" So, <laughs> I'm sure, and I yeah. love it, Simeon. If you're listening, right. we love that guy. Love that dude. So let's talk about as we've talked about sibling rivalry, and you know subtle Cain and Abel tendencies. Let's talk about societal rivalry and why we judge the hell out of each other every minute of the day. Yeah, writing in the Atlantic Monthly, Julie Beck decided to uh, use this op- this time, uh, this kind of fractious moment in our national life to uh, unpack, uh, once again, Jonathan Haidt's moral foundations theory, which some of our listeners would be familiar with, just as we've blogged about it, and he's spoken at one of our conferences. For those who are just as a refresher, uh, Jonathan Haidt's work, he identifies six different moral metrics, and those six different ones are liberty, fairness, loyalty, authority, care, and purity. And now different groups and cultures prefer to emphasize these domains to different degrees. For example, people in Eastern countries tend to emphasize purity and loyalty more than those in Western countries. Those who live in countries where there's been a lot of disease, uh, they tend to place a higher value on purity as well as loyalty and authority. And the United States, the basic breakdown is that liberals or those who tend uh, identify themselves as progressives focus mostly on care, fairness, and liberty. While conservatives generally emphasize all six domains, and this is why commonly it's understood, the studies show that it, it's easier for a conservative to articulate a liberal position than uh, the other way around because they're familiar with those three and the, um, the liberals, I guess, don't even recognize the other three. Uh, But they go on to say that as in-groups become larger and more depersonalized, the institutions, rules, and customs that maintain that loyalty uh, take on the character of moral authority. So when one group is in power, essentially, uh, their their values become moral superiority, and it becomes incompatible with tolerance for difference, even if tolerance is one of their moral uh, convictions. So difference starts to get coded as immoral, and that's where the trouble begins. The intolerance can manifest as contempt, segregation, and avoidance. Uh, Height says wonderfully, he says, humans tend, don't tend to carefully reason through scenarios before coming to a moral judgment about them. Instead, their guts tell them something is right or wrong, and then they go back to use reason to justify that conclusion. Now, uh, Sarah, I know you were at this conference. Uh, Scott, I think you were there, but... Um, I put Jonathan Haidt on the spot and I said that I, I used Ashley Null's classic uh, formulation of uh, Cranmer's, Thomas Cranmer's anthropology, where he says, What the heart desires, uh, the will chooses and the mind justifies. And he said, That's exactly right. And I felt extremely vindicated and justified as a human being. Super smart, too. Yeah, what, did, what, did you get, smart. what did you get on your SATs, your verbal SAT, David? Me? I did better on yeah. the math. I did better on the really? math. Yeah. Yeah. You're was, so hard to, I was just thinking the way you said fractious and just used it like a normal... Like, like no big you, deal. You have such a good vocabulary. <laughs> well, I, I feel like I'm more likable than you, Scott, but I also do uh, know, know a whole lot more. So I've got... You do. You're so well-spoken. Just kidding. I feel like, I feel like, and Sarah and I have talked about this, Scott always uh, busts out these quotes. Now we've started that to post incredible. on the, on the internet. It's like, where does he know this stuff? Who's reading yeah, yeah, the yeah. pontifical preacher to the, uh, you know, the household of Pope John, the, the, the whatever, 20, 
fifth. People it, that cry at the wrath of Khan. Yeah, people that <laughs> cry at the wrath of Khan. It's a small group. It's a small group. Sarah, are you into purity? Because I mean, you're pretty relaxed, but I but you strike me as someone who could like bust out Purell and like I mean, oh, it seems like purity would be a moral value for you. Um, gosh, really? That's so interesting. No, it's not at all. Um, it's yeah, it's really, it's not, it haven't been raised. Like if with your that, ice cream fell on the floor, you'd eat it. Oh yeah. I have no, I mean, my husband is much more like the clean oriented person in the relationship. Yeah. It doesn't. Yeah. Mm. I mean, I was thinking last so night we have, um, when we were, uh, newly married, no children, we were a member of like a signed first editions club. And, um, I, uh, pulled a book off the shelf last night to read it. And my husband is like, he's just like trying to hold himself back. You know, he's like, please don't read that. Cause like someday it might be worth money. And I'm like, like, that's me, you know, like I just like not gonna, I'm like, it's fine. I, and then I looked it up. I'm like, it's only worth $45 now. He's like, that's, that's not the point. Like the guy could die. I'm like, I'll be, it'll be fine. So yeah, that's, that's kind of where I am. You know, I, I loved these, this idea that, um, that morality is, is not, something we can clearly define for anyone. Um, and I like that one example where he said, what do you do? Like one person who might not care about starving children or impoverished people, but is incredibly gracious and kind and loving to their neighbors and their family versus somebody who is trying to alleviate suffering and rescuing dogs and sending money to Haitian children, but is a jerk at home, you know, an alienating distant father or something, you know, so it's, how do you, which one's more moral? And it's like, well, depends on what your scale is. Everybody sucks. Yeah. Um, I can't everybody, everybody sucks. sucks. Sometimes. <laughs> I, I, I kept thinking of, um, you know, I came of age in Mississippi. It's still a big issue there, but it was a very, it was like, I, you know, there was just so much conservative, moralistic Christianity stuff around uh, abortion was a huge issue. And I can remember having a lot of conversations with my parents about it. And my parents fell on such interesting terms. I mean, my, my mother said to me, my concern is that, um, you know, at that point in time when I was in high school, and I don't know what the numbers are now, but it was it was very young black women who were getting abortions, so like 14, 15 years old. She said, my concern is that the that the the people who are religious right, for lack of a better description, um, want these girls to have these babies, but don't really care what happens to the babies afterwards. And then she said, and my real and my other concern is people on the left want these girls to be able to have these abortions, but don't care about any of the of the psychological ramifications that are gonna that are gonna follow them for the rest of their lives. Um, so it's, it's, it's just interesting to me. This is like intrinsic to humanity. I mean, it's not a new thing that we like have moral superiority to one another, but because of the internet, we have so many different ways to put it on display and argue about it and figure out who we're better than. Mm. They, uh, she, at the end of the article, in fact, they kind of, it, they're trying to figure out how can you break the gridlock when two people disagree on this stuff? Because one professor, she says that when you have a strong moral conviction about something, it really is pretty much akin to your belief that two plus two equals four. I mean, can you imagine being able to persuade someone uh, for someone else to be able to persuade you off of that conclusion? Um, When an issue is moralized for someone, when they believe there's a right or wrong outcome, they care more about getting the right outcome than how it's achieved. And so if the system comes to a morally wrong answer, it's taken as a sign that the system is broken. I think we're probably dealing with that right now. Mm -hmm. But then at the very end, this is my favorite part of the article, says that once a difference gets coded as immoral, the tension is nigh impossible to diffuse. 
or at least research has yet to find a way. I don't know how one undoes it once this moralizing of difference has happened, this professor says, other than, you know, a Martian invasion. Something more different comes along that makes you realize you have some similarities. And, uh, you know, sometimes when people say, you know, it would be good if we had... uh, uh, th- th- we, this is one, one thing we miss in not having like a really overarching common enemy or danger or people not having to sort of fend for their lives that you you develop into these tribes and it gets pretty pretty dark pretty quickly and then here you also are in Christmas where the sort of gridlock uh, the dark light shining into the darkness of that gridlock I think is uh, we talk about a Martian invasion something coming from the outside and that that's where my mind goes what about you Scott? The sequel to Independence Day sucked. <laughs> I can't believe you, you watched about, it. Think Martian Invasion. I, 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 I so because I, I thought the first Independence Day was a decent blockbuster film, but I just feel like uh, that movie sucked. So didn't bring me together with anybody. I can't believe you actually watched it. Oh, I watched it at home. I mean, I, I you know, watched it streaming or whatever. But um, yeah, you know, I think that one of the things. Uh, that's interesting about him. I love Hate's work. I think he's so interesting. And just, he's just such an honest intellectual too. I heard him on, on Chris Tippett's show and he was like, he's researching capitalism. He's like, well, you know, I just realized I didn't know anything about capitalism. And so I started with a teaching company course and I'll recommend it. And we're just like, I love hearing like this, you know, impressive intellectual say like what he doesn't know. And he listens to teaching company courses like, pseudo intellectuals like myself do try to do it. So, so it's just so great. But I think recently I was really strong. Mark Oppenheimer said something once that he said, yeah, I would have a neo-Nazi on the podcast if they were mannerly. And he probably would, but he had recently, and maybe we can link to it, uh, you know, on the, uh, the weekender, but recently he reconnected with somebody who dropped out of Yale was at Yale when he was there and he was a Trump supporter. And actually me in the news, he he basically bet, you know, went to England to place a bet on the election and won hundreds of thousands of dollars on it. But Mark and he had the greatest conversation about like trying to understand where the, each other were, where they were coming from respectively. And I was just so impressed because you just don't hear conversations like that very often where people are actually trying to understand before they're understood as opposed to just like get your talking points out. Like hate says, you know, when we're debating things often, what we're really doing is trying to show our team that we're on the team Signaling, as opposed yeah. to being trying to being persuasive. So there you go. I thought, you know, I, I love Jonathan hates work and may it, his it, tribe increase. I mean, it kind of, um, it's a nice setup for this next uh, thing that we were talking about, which is this incredible story of a gap being bridged in the most remarkable fashion. This is, comes to me from uh, comes to us from the my, my my brother that I that I think very highly of, John. <laughs> <laughs> Simeon, I did not collude. If you're listening, I didn't laugh. Sarah laughed. Well, if, I, I feel like if you really think about it, uh, John is a good brother. Anyway, um, <laughs> he is a good brother. So fill, is fill in the blanks, fill in the blanks. So this is this is about a little girl in a grocery store. Tara Wood of Augusta, Georgia, was with two of her kids on a routine trip to the grocery store, and it was her four-year-old Nora's birthday. And uh, they're at the grocery store, and they run across Dan Peterson, known as Mister Dan. Now, uh, Mister Dan walked by, and this is uh, the mother speaking. And Nora smiled and waved. She said, "Hi, old person." It's my birthday. 
And he stopped in his tracks and smiled and said, well, hello, little lady. How old are you today? And they chatted for a little bit and went their separate ways. But the interaction stuck with the little girl. So a few minutes later, she asked her mom if she could go find him and take a picture with him. And Mr. Dan says, I was coming up the bread aisle. And I said, okay, this is my last aisle before I get out of here. And then all of a sudden, here's this little girl again. And so they pose together and then they hug each other like they're long lost friends and they thank Mr. Dan for his time. And he, when they thank him, he tears up and he says, no, thank you. This has been the best day I've had in a long time. You've made me so happy, Miss Nora. And then the mother goes home and shares it on Facebook, the picture they've taken. And uh, I guess a friend in the community who knows Mr. Dan reached out to let the mother know that his wife had just died and she hadn't seemed him this happy in a really long time that she had known Mr. Dan and his late wife. Uh, and so she gets this phone call. Uh, so sorry, Mr. Dan, they decide to call him and, um, basically little Nora wants to go pay him a visit and Mr. Dan lets him, him, her come over. So this is Dan speaking. He says, they came by the house and sure enough, she grabbed me and hugged me like there was no tomorrow. Uh, Nora had brought him a framed picture of the two of them in the grocery store and pictures that she'd colored in a bag full of pastries and butterfingers. <laughs> I love that I little love touch. Butterfing- it's like, butterfingers sort of, is like the best candy bar. Sort of like little kid touch. And after going over to pay him a visit, uh, I guess Nora started to ask her mother to go visit Mr. Dan after school every single day. And while they don't go by every day, they do make a point to call on him at least once a week. And they definitely went over to help him celebrate his 82nd birthday. Mr. Dan said that when he'd run into Nora at the grocery store, he'd been having a really tough time. It was one of those days when I'm on my own little private pity party. And I'm feeling sorry for myself and doubting my beliefs. And it obviously changed my opinion that day and lifted my spirits to heights that I hadn't known for a long time. And Mr. Dan let Nora's mother know, and he said that he hadn't had an uninterrupted night of sleep for the past several months. Sadness and anxiety had made his mind wander at night, but since meeting Nora, he has slept soundly every single night. He said that she healed him. And I don't know, maybe that's a little bit of a Hallmark card, but this is true, and it happened. And it's, um, talk about a little, he talks about her being an angel in his life. And um, this incredible moment of being met at your low point uh, unexpectedly through no no effort of your own with pure grace and love that just sort of seeks you out and continues to seek you out. And all of a sudden you can sleep. Yeah, I loved this. So I saw this a couple weeks ago and and I love these stories when they come out. But the thing I want to say here is that we've lost so much of this culturally. And and, and I, gosh, I feel like my grandmother, the... Who, who is a self-described uh, Pharisee Southern Baptist. I feel, I feel so much like her saying this right now, but it's because people don't go to church anymore. Cause when we go to church, <laughs> it's true. When you go to church, churchy. especially, yeah, churchy, especially like mainline Protestant, tradi- I'm sure Catholic, same way. There are so many elderly people there and your kid gets to interact with them. I mean, we were at a church supper the other night. And I have this pretty neurotic habit of looking around for my children like every three minutes because, you know, I married the priest. He's not really parenting in these situations. So I've got to like make sure they're okay. And they're two and they're six. So they're always running around for 20 minutes. Every time I looked over for my son, the kindergartner, uh, he was sitting at this table with four women who are all widows, like 
right in the middle of there, like two on either side. Like it took everything in me not to take a picture of him and post it like Neil and his squad. You know what I mean? And, and they love Neil and they know him cause he like, he helps them arrange the flowers on Sunday morning and he's an altar guild with them. And he has a relationship with them that's beyond me, you know? And I just, if you, if you want to have this experience for your kids, you actually don't have to wander around a grocery store. Like churches provide this all the time. It's pretty incredible. That's the end of my soapbox. <laughs> Love it. No, we're, uh, we're so age segregated by age. In oh, society. it's crazy. It's crazy. You know, no. okay. I'm going to tell a story and then I'll stop. But we were at, um, we were at a record shop, uh, a couple months ago and there was this really, really young guy who was behind the cash register and he kept yelling at this elderly woman. And he was like, if you keep coming by here, you know, we're going to, we're going to make you leave. And you, you keep trying to like, she'd come up to us and maybe tried to sell a record to us or something. And you can't do this. I mean, he gave her this whole lecture. He was probably 22 years old and his boss came over who was like 60 and said, you know, she's, she's elderly. Cause this woman, the, the woman he was having this disagreement with was like in her eighties, she's elderly and she doesn't actually know what she's doing. And I looked at Josh and I said, this, like, we're not around elderly people anymore. Like we don't even have a context for what that looks like anymore. Um, I mean, we, you know, we're going to talk about this piece about home, but it's this whole idea of, you know, people don't age at home anymore. We don't. So anyway, Okay, now I'm done with my soapbox. <laughs> Get to church, everybody. Uh, yeah, I was sitting outside my therapist in the like, uh, outside of her office in the waiting room, and she shares the office with a guy who does mostly stuff with children and families. And there was this little boy, and he he was we we would come at the same time every week. Um, and he's autistic, and he's probably like seven years old. And he and I had this bond for some reason. And he would and one day. He ran out of the therapist's office. I was still waiting and he ran out of the office. He was in there with his parents and the therapist said, what, is there something wrong? Do you forget something? And he ran up to me and just touched my face. Aww. And the therapist said, is he your friend? You have a friend. And he shook, he shook his head. Yes. And, and just kept touching my face. And it was one of these moments where, you know, everybody, right. It's just the Martin Buber thing, right? Like, Everyone wants an I thou moment. Like we live in such an I it world and mm-hmm. these moments of where, where people are both subjects and not objects. It's that, I mean, this is where I think capacity for healing and human understanding happens. There's no place like home. That is for certain. Mm. Yeah. And that is the subject of this next piece, which really struck me as pretty fresh. Uh, interesting. Charles uh, Ledbetter writing for Aeon, uh, Nobody is Home. And he sort of takes the tiny house movement that's on the West Coast uh, as one example of the lengths to which people will go to create a sense of home, even when they lack the means for it. Uh, in, according to Ledbetter, it's just one symptom of a much wider and intensifying search for belonging, which makes home as important to politics as the idea 
idea of class or rights, especially now when so many people feel displaced, both literally and figuratively, by life in innovation-driven, high-tech, networked capitalism. On top of that, the contest over where home is and who is entitled to live there. I mean, if you think about Brexit, if you think about immigration, if you think about Syrian refugees, I mean, it is really at the, at the top of the list, but underlying it is a really a kind of a spiritual issue. Um, the common thread of, ho- of, of home, the way he describes it, is that home provides us with a tethered sense of identity. Home matters so much now because so many people feel the tether coming loose. And then he goes on to talk about how Descartes located identity in the mind, I think, therefore I am, um, and it secured it sort of it was there uh, undergirded by rational process of thoughts detached from the physical world but heidegger uh martin heidegger the you know as we know the quite uh, controversial philosopher says i dwell there for i am uh, for him identity was bound up with being in the world which in turn means having a place in it we don't live in the abstract space favored by philosophers but in a particular place with specific features and history now heidegger's pessimistic diagnosis of the ills of a restless and rootless modern society driven by science and technology is that it systematically robs people of this feeling of being at home in the world. It is set up to deny the very thing we most need for a sense of identity and purpose. Therefore, for Heidegger, nostalgia is a necessary condition of being modern. And, you know, if you look at all these uh, Christmas shopping gift guides that are that we're bombarded with and that Mockingbird has produced its own, you know, so much of the stuff is, is peddling nostalgia. Hmm. You know, whether it be uh, Stranger Things or whether it be, you know, Star Wars that we're all going to see this weekend. Um, You know, he talks about how kids, you know, even being people, it's not just women that work at home now. It's everyone pretty much works at home uh, if they want to. And when kids are at home, they're actually not at home oftentimes because they're sort of occupying a virtual space and social media. Um, It talks about in, in England, one of the reason that the the generation voted against uh, Brexit or just to, 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 sorry, for Brexit to leave the EU is because they have a sentimental attachment to home and no one uh, on a sub rational level that we want to sort of be able to go home and recognize it uh, because especially as everything else that would give us a sense of identity and purpose and belonging has left. Um, this is the one thing where people aren't, it's such a strong pull over it. And he goes on to say that tensions over the meaning of home will only intensify. If people feel thwarted in finding their place in the world, they will become more angry, depressed, defeated, and sad. Now, this is a sad, sad piece, but we're also, again, in the middle of Advent, starting to focus on the, you know, Jesus, Mary, and Joseph, uprooted, having to go to be counted. That incredible picture on the front of the New York Times the other day of the Syrian refugees, of the, the mother and the father and the little boy. And it just this, this, um, the, the Christmas story kind of folds directly into this kind of, uh, thing about, um, belonging and home and uprooting and displacement. And um, I don't know, you guys feel at home where you are? (laughs) Scott, Scott's at the beach. You mentioned that Descartes and my Calvin teacher in seminary told a story. I think it was like the university of Iowa, you know, where they, they basically the veterinarian school there wanted an expansion uh, of part of their farm care program or something, you know, to do with equestrian things. And the philosophy department though, wanted more resources because it was new and growing. And so he said that this is an example, the philosophy 
department wanted to put Descartes before the horse. <laughs> ah, I got a million of them. <laughs> Keep it coming. He actually wrote that in a footnote <clears throat> to a book on Calvin <clears throat> that he worked for years on, published by Oxford University Press. I'm like, why would you put that in that, in that book? But it's great. They wanted to put Descartes before the horse. Get it? Descartes Get it. before the horse. It's solid. That's a that's Christmas party worthy. Uh, yeah. So this is our third rectory. We were in an apartment for you know it was 350 square feet uh, in New York City as a newly married couple, and this and then we were in a rectory in East Chester, New York, a rectory in Armonk, New York, and now we're in a rectory in Houston, Texas. Um, so we've never owned our home. Um, we've never chosen our home. I mean, we just show up and this is where we live. And I've been thinking so much because we're, we're hitting the point where we've been at this church longer than we've been anywhere. And I've been thinking so much that this place feels more like home than any of the houses we've been in. And it's not because it's like the nicest home we've ever lived in. It's not, it's not any of those reasons, but it's because we've been through so much in this home. And we've reconciled ourselves to so much in this home. I mean, I, I think about, you know, we had a, a really tragic, um, violent murder of one of our former clergy. I guess that was a year and a half ago. Was it that long ago? And I think about all the, the parishioners who showed up at our house with bottles of wine, weeping with my husband. I mean, there are those things that happen that like mark a place as home. And I'm so grateful for that because I think Josh and I are pretty similar to a lot of people of our generation. We've moved a lot. I mean, we haven't had that sense of home. And, you know, I don't know about you guys, but I was definitely raised as most people our age with not with not with the sense that you, you stay home, that you stay in the town with your parents, but that you, you, you know, you go out on your own and you leave and you make your own place. And while all that sounds really great, um, there's a loss. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I, um, I'm so grateful that where we are feels like home now. Yeah. I, I, you know, Craig Barnes in a, in a book, I think it's called searching for home. He says, you know, he talks about his grandfather. He's the president of Princeton Seminary, a pretty celebrated preacher. And he talks about how his grandfather did a stint, you know, playing in a band. And then it was just time to come home, you know, and, and, and he knew that. And his friend, you know, and he came out, he said, you know, growing up where he did as a boomer, he was an exile. Suburban life is all about exile, you know, because exiles are always thinking about going home. And so, so much of suburban American life, he argues, is recreating the home you left. Right. And he says, you know, my daughter though, she's a nomad. Like she, when, when something says permanent address on it, that's where I am right now. You know? And I think that, that there's a difference between being nomadic because you're not thinking about the place of origin anymore. Right? The other thing that, that made me, I, I mean, I, I, I am sort of, I'm fascinated with Heidegger. I it's kind of a, it, an interest that goes on and off with me, but he also, you know, he had all these Jewish students that looked up to him. And that his Nazism is all the more tragic because people like Hannah Arendt, who I think was in love with him, you know, this, but Franz uh, Rosenzweig wrote a book, The Star of Redemption. And I think in the article, they mentioned how like for Heidegger, you know, you're situated in the world and, and you got to kind of, kind of go with it rather than try to dominate. But he has this notion of throneness, you know, worth of, of what it's like to be you know, sort of create, it's like your avatar is randomized, you know, you don't get to choose your character in World of Warcraft, you get just get to be what you are, and not finding that, but Rosenzweig, in, in the Star of Redemption, who's a great Jewish thinker, he, he talks about creation and being placed, and I think 
it makes all the difference whether you feel thrown or placed. And, mm-hmm. and I think that in, even in hard times and spots like that, I think there is a gift of grace in, in seeing yourself as placed. Play the game and pretend But all my words come back to me In shades of mediocrity Like emptiness in harmony I need someone to comfort me Homeward bound I wish I was Homeward bound you know, it, it also makes me think of uh, the Henry Nouwen quote from The Return of the Prodigal Son that uh, I think Will McDavid posted a couple of years ago. Um, when he writes that addiction might be the best word to explain the lostness that so deeply permeates contemporary society. Our addictions make us cling to what the world proclaims as the keys to self-fulfillment, accumulation of wealth and power, attainment of status and admiration, lavish consumption of food and drink, and sexual gratification without distinguishing between lust and love. These addictions create expectations that cannot fail, uh, cannot but fail to satisfy our deepest needs. They condemn us to futile quests and an endless series of disillusionment. While our sense of self remains unfulfilled, we have wandered far away from our father's home. The addicted life can aptly be designated a life lived in, quote, a distant country. But it is from there that our cry of deliverance rises up. And that piece about now in in Commonweal, Commonweal, I mean, just, I found that piece incredibly moving. Yeah, what what Scott's referring to is Michael Higgins. Uh, I guess this is the twentieth anniversary of Henry Henry Nouwen's death. Uh, priest, writer, mentor, misfit, and it's this incredible exploration of what Nouwen's legacy and who he was actually was as a person. Uh, an exploration of the richly faceted dimensions of Henri Nouwen, uh, a Pierrot-like figure with many masks, a solo artist and yet needy companion, a man born for the stage and yet deeply unsure of his own authenticity, a marvel and a misfit, a Joseph with a many-colored dream coat. In his ability to turn personal vulnerability into spiritual exploration lies the broad appeal of his writing that that his writing made to his devoted readers. Nowen addressed others' people's pain by nakedly sharing his own. He spoke of our woundedness because he knew what that meant in very personal and even visceral terms. Whether counseling students, attending to the sick and the dying, or comforting the despairing, Nowen drew from the well of his own anguish. He saw in his own pain a conduit of grace, a generative source of compassion and ground of human solidarity, an opening to heal others. I could read from it much at much more length, but but that was the paragraph that got me. And as a person, I've only I've read a couple of his books. I've read The Wounded Healer and The Return of the Prodigal Son and In the Name of Jesus, I think. But that's such the tip of the iceberg when it comes to him. Um, but this this man, I mean, his journals, I guess, really uh, reveal that he f- viewed himself as an outsider, somebody who doesn't have a home, who's tolerated by his surroundings but not accepted, who's liked but not loved. Um, and that, that actually, that confession that uh, was an open door through which the grace of God flowed um, has been borne out. Uh, and uh, his restlessness, talk about a man without a home. Mm-hmm. He lived all over the place. And where he finally found home was that, Larsh community, um, 
you know, uh, among people sort of, of all sorts of mental impairments, um, that was where he finally found some rest, not in a Trappist monastery, not in South America, uh, looking into the Inquisition, not in the academy. Um, he kind of subverts our notions of home and belonging. Um, and uh, God places him in the most counterintuitive kind of Nazareth, as it were, the Bethlehem of um, the world in, in which his final days were spent. So yeah, there's this great story in the beginning of In the Name of Jesus, where he's talking about the move to La Arche. And he's like, here I am with all this theological education I've taught at Harvard. And I go to pass the meat to a mentally retarded adult. And, he said, and one of the other adults says, oh no, he doesn't eat meat. He's a Presbyterian. <laughs> and like, he's like, everything I knew and trained for was meaningless in this right. context. It's beautiful. So he taught at Yale for 10 years. And yeah. And in the, at Yale Divinity School where I went to school and in the, in the very bottom of the building, in, in the very bottom of the library, there is this small, um, room to the side that they apparently in the sixties kept thinking, do we turn this into a small lecture hall? What do we do with this? And some of now and students came forward and said, we want to pay for a chapel in his honor. So it's this tiny, tiny chapel. It's it's pretty austere. And um, my favorite description of Nowen in this piece was he was an introvert in extrovert's clothing. And I loved this chapel because everyone knew about it. I mean, they would tell you in orientation, but very few people would actually go in it. And I loved it. But when I would go in, it would be me and like two very introverted people. And none of us, we we were all so done with all of the, all of the stuff that is seminary. And we would just, we wouldn't talk to each other. We just go sit, you know, in this chapel. It was like this little haven for, for, um, for introverts who needed quiet. So he is, he has, I mean, his, his writing's incredible. He's such a special place in my heart because of Yale. Yeah. Yeah. I just thought the description of him was so amazing. I, I, I mean, there's so, I, yeah, I love Nowen's work, but the, there, there are two quotes from the wounded healer that stay with me. Um, one this grace is when the imitation of Christ does not mean to live a life like Christ, but to live your life as authentically as Christ lived his, then there are many ways and forms in which a man can be a Christian. Mm. And there's this other passage about compassion. He says through compassion, it is possible to recognize that the craving for love that people feel resides also in our own hearts, that the cruelty the world knows all too well is also rooted in our own impulses. Through compassion, we also sense our hope for forgiveness in our friends' eyes and our hatred in their bitter mouths. When they kill, we know that we could have done it. When they give life, we know that we can do the same. For a compassionate person, nothing human is alien. Mm. No joy and no sorrow, no way of living and no way of dying. Mm. So there's um, hope even for Simeon. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, that's, that's the moral of the story, right? Yeah, hope for everyone. Everyone. <laughs> Simeon needs less hope than the rest of us. Did now and change dude. one of Simeon's diapers? That's what inquiring minds want to know. The Zal history. <laughs> Maybe. If not, he should have. Well, we've said it all, everybody. We have said it all. And thank you. Marathon Once again. Yeah, Marathon Roundtable. And Mm -hmm. I will talk to you all next week. Okay. Bye, friends. Bye. 
Thanks for listening to The Mockingcast. As always, you can find any of the content we reference on our website, mbird.com. If you like what you heard, please cruise on over to iTunes and give us a rating. Write a review, hopefully a positive one. It helps a lot. We exist because of the generosity, enthusiasm, and support of you, our readers and listeners. And for that, we are forever grateful. This podcast is produced by yours truly, Scott Jones, ably assisted by my associate, David Peterson. Thanks again for listening and have a great weekend.